The Better Understanding Podcast is an invitation, an open-hearted extended hand to increase our ability to work, lead, and live with one another more effectively. The premise and philosophy of the podcast is that it all begins with understanding ourselves and understanding others. In season one, and with some of the most successful experts and leaders of diversity and inclusion efforts in the world, we explored what it means to lead inclusively. In season two, we are bringing to life our Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Arrive and Thrive, via powerful stories, earned wisdom, and lessons learned from some of the world's preeminent leaders and thrivers. Join me, Susan McEntee Brady, as we explore how to arrive and thrive. I'm delighted to introduce today's Better Understanding podcast guest, organizational health and well-being expert, Dr. Rich Safir. Dr. Safir is the Chief Medical Director of Employee Health and Wellbeing at Johns Hopkins Medicine, where she leads the Healthy at Hopkins Employee Health and Wellbeing Strategy. He also holds faculty appointments in the School of Medicine and Public Health at Johns Hopkins University, and he is a fellow of the American Academy of Family Practice, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and the American College of Preventative Medicine. He served on the board of the directors for the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and he's on the New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst Insight Council. I interviewed Rich while writing Orion and Thrive, and his wisdom is featured in both the practice on investing in your best self, which is practice one, as well as the practice of fostering resilience. And I love what he had to say about well-being and wellness and self-care. Rich and I met through a mutual connection and serve in an advisory capacity for our .love company, which is a relationship wellness technology company that combines relationship science and artificial intelligence to help you build stronger, more loving and fulfilling relationships, something we agree is a core component to well-being. Rich is the author of A Cure for the Common Company, a well-being prescription for a happier, healthier, and more resilient workforce. Rich, welcome to the Better Understanding Podcast, and thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Susan. It's good to see you again. Great to see you too. So it's been busy. T- tell me, I mean, I, I said a lot, but anything else you want our listeners to know about you? Well, uh, I've been in this space for more than two decades, and I've learned a lot along the way. Some of the things I've done have been very successful, and I've made some mistakes. And as a result of 25 years with some wins and some losses, I've decided to put it on paper so that I could help other people uh, try to do the same at their organization. This is really important work, and no one person can do it alone. So the book is intended to help managers, leaders, human resource professionals, and other people in the field work together with their colleagues to create a healthier and more well culture in the workplace. So tell me more about this new book of yours. So how how is well-being shifting in the working context? Well, the workplace has been a uh, has been a nidus for addressing employee health and well-being for decades. It goes back to after World War II, uh, when some employers, I think it was the teachers uh, in a region in Texas, developed an insurance plan. And fast forward through the workplace wellness era. And now we're really seeing into a much more deep understanding of all the nuances that impact our health and well-being. And 
a lot of people for the last four or five years have been using the phrase well-being culture. And that's where I come in. Um, because a decade ago, when I was first starting at Johns Hopkins, I was studying this area from a colleague, Judd Allen, who had been in this space for a couple of decades. And people were using the phrase inappropriately. They were using well-being culture and it almost felt like they were rebranding workplace wellness. And as a result, we decided to write a letter to the editor of a journal of occupational environmental medicine to kind of level set. And then one thing led to another. And I'm like, you know what? It's time to tell the whole story through a book. So give our listeners just a little idea what it takes to create a culture of health, you know, either on your team. I know you address it at the team level and the company level, but the promise of happiness and engagement yeah. is an attractive promise. Like who wouldn't want to be happier, right? Especially in the workday. So um, I look at this as a collection of six building blocks that work together to create this social milieu, this environment where well-being is supported throughout the day. And these six building blocks are in no particular order. None of them is more important than another. And I'll just kind of give high levels so you don't have to hear me drone on because I could do this for probably an eight-hour session. <laughs> the first one I'll mention is peer support, how we're helping our colleagues with both our uh, healthy habits and our emotional well-being during the day. Leadership engagement, so not just leadership support, not just leaders saying they think well-being is a good idea, but actually being engaged in the building of this culture. The third one I'll mention is shared values, when both the company and the employees value the same thing and then make it a priority, and that priority pays, plays out in a lot of different ways. Um, N is for norms. And norms are the expected behavior of a group of people. So a healthy norm would be to step away from your desk and go walking at lunchtime. And an unhealthy norm would, to eat at, would be to eat at your desk uh, during lunch. And so teams and companies have norms. Some are healthier than others. Culture connection points, the fifth building block, culture connection points, are essentially the way employers can nudge employees to take a healthier path. So a pretty common um, culture connection point would be to have a newsletter, you know, a, a wellness newsletter. It could be informative, but one newsletter by itself isn't going to change the world. So there's 11 other culture connection points. And when you combine four or five of them, it tends to start shifting people in a direction that you might, you know, that would be a positive one. Mm -hmm. And then the last building block is something uh, I call social climate. And that is the general feeling of the team or the workplace. <laughs> Some people call it employee morale. And there's three elements to the social climate as I see it. And the first is sense of community. Uh, feeling like you belong. The second is having a positive outlook or seeing the cup half full. And the third is 
having a shared vision, like everybody's rowing in the same direction. You all have the same goal. And by intentionally using these six building blocks, your team, your organization can gradually see a shift in the culture. Uh, and the reason why the culture is so important is because it's there every day. Mm -hmm. you, you don't have to sign up for it. You don't have to go down the hall at 1230 on a Thursday to get your culture. It's just part of the way the organization runs. So, oh my gosh, I want to dive into all of these. Of the, of the six, Rich, out of curiosity, what, are there any building blocks that without one of them, the others don't work? So you heard me say this about the seven practices around Arrive and Thrive. I truly believe while all seven are critical, if we're not leading from our best self, if we're not consciously returning to a place of respect and compassion for ourselves and others in a healthy way, it's really hard to yeah. practice the other six practices. Anything like that as you look at your building blocks for... for <laughs> well, in fact, uh, Susan, I have a running theme throughout the chapters on the building blocks. And that's about self-care. Um, and, and so uh, very similar to what you just said. And that... Each of these building blocks, the manager, the leader needs to look at them both as a manager and leader, but also as an individual. Um, so for example, peer support. How can you as a manager encourage or make it easier for people on your team to work together to achieve their health goals or at least remove some of the barriers um, or to support each other emotionally? But then turn it back on yourself. You know, as a leader or manager, who's my peer? Who's my coworker that I can confide in and tell, tell this person about what I'm struggling with so that they can be there to help me find solutions or even just be a good person to listen? So, um, yes, Susan, I would say that without self-care, then we're pretty much not going to get too far in building a well-being culture. Okay, so just in case our listeners are like, you know, thinking they know what self-care means. I just have to share with everyone. When when we had our conversation, uh, when I was interviewing you for the book, uh, if you recall, I was like poised with my legal pad of paper, ready to write down the things I had to do to be well and to have self-care. And then we got talking about psychological flow and being in a state of flow. Yeah. Uh, yep. Can you connect the dots here for our listening audience? Maybe even make some defining terms. So we've got well-being, we're throwing around wellness, we're throwing around self-care, and then yeah. I just threw in the mix this whole state of, of flow and psychological flow. So sure, to be in flow, it's a state. It's a state, it's usually a temporary state, but you're in a state where you are present in optimal performance. Uh, and you're enjoying that state of mind and state of body. And it's easier sometimes for people to understand that in the context of sports. So I like to play tennis, and on good days, I am very present with my racket and my tennis ball and the, my feet on the ground, and I'm playing really well, and I'm enjoying myself. It's a very thoroughly uh, optimal experience. Now, in the workplace, it's it's more likely that occurs like with a particular project or some um, assignment that you're, you're working on, that you are lost in the time 
because you are just uh, completely in, engulfed in the moment of doing this. Now, in order to find the state of flow, it, it's really important to feel well and to be well, because if you have a headache or you're sad, it's really kind of difficult to not be thinking about those things or have them weighing on you. It's, you're not going to get to flow when there's something off inside of you. Mm. Boy, I know that. And it's funny. I just saw this graphic that says that one of the many reasons we need to be kind to other people, especially yeah. in work settings, when we're frustrated, maybe with the resource, is there's so little we really know about that person and what's going on inside them. Right. So the book is about creating a well-being culture, what you can do as a leader. And part of that is recognizing that there are people on your team that are probably not, not well. And even if they're well four out of five days a week, there's still that fifth day. So um, yes, there is some self-care that's running as a, a sub-theme throughout that, but it's, it's really written for us as managers, leaders, and professionals working on this area. So I don't know what which of the building blocks, but I do have a question about boundaries. We get asked this a lot. It came up in the research when we were, when Janet and Lynn and I were writing about authenticity. I think sometimes people get the notion of being authentic, a little confused and think that, you know, to be really me at work, I need to like expose my every thought and feeling. Having said that, I just went through a really, really, really grief-filled year. Mm. And I shared some of that with my team. So they knew I wasn't well a lot because yeah. I had a medical issue and I had a death in my family and a relationship came to an end. I felt as CEO of the Institute, like it was important that I be somewhat transparent with my team. And I'm realizing I am the leader of the team. So I had some say in that. And so my safety wasn't really threatened. Do you have advice for listeners about how much we want to expose to our colleagues about our well-being really? You know what I mean? Because there's, yeah. there's listeners probably like, wait a minute, what? Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't really want to. Well, I think it's great that you did that, Susan. Um, you know, Mark Bertolini was the former CEO of Aetna. And probably 20 years ago, uh, before this whole movement to make mental health a normal conversation in the workplace, he shared some, some very serious challenges with the entire organization. In fact, it went public. And what you did and what Mark did was show vulnerability, something that Brene Brown writes on, and I believe it was Dare to Lead. And vulnerability is a, um, you know, I, I was going to say it's a really great thing. That it's almost like it's necessary to show the people on your team that you are human yeah. and that um, it, it gives permission for the people on the team to also be human because a lot of people come in and they look at their boss and like, wow, this person is so high functioning. And, you know, they kind of, there's a lot of deference and they don't want to, you know, say anything that may not be acceptable on the team. So it's a real gift for any leader to share something about themselves, to, to make that known both to, to normalize the conversation, but to also explain some of their emotions. 
Now, if you don't mind me just taking this one step further, there's something called emotional contagion. And what that is, it's the, it's the transfer of our emotions. And it happens with our friends. It happens with our family. You know, if you're a parent and your child is, is hurt or, or doesn't feel well, you're going to feel that. Well, in the workplace, when the manager's leader, I'm sorry, the manager's emotions have a disproportionately high impact on causing emotional contagion, both in a good way and in a bad way. And so the leaders have to specifically know that they should check their emotions at the door. Before you go into a meeting, take a breath. How am I feeling? Oh, good. I'm in a good mood. Open the door. Or, oh, I'm feeling a little stressed. What is my go-to one-minute thing to unwind a little bit before I walk into this room? Now, um, Susan, I, I think you were possibly alluding to, are there boundaries? You know, it's okay to share because it can be a good thing, but where's the end? And, you know, you certainly don't want to go to your team and have it come across as if you're seeking their counsel or their therapy. You don't want to put the onus on them. So you have to you know, be very measured. And you also have to be a good judge of the people on your team. If somebody else on the team recently had a big loss, maybe it's, um, you know, you're going to have to weigh whether or not this is the right time to have the attention come toward yourself. Right, right. I think that's judgment. And I'm noticing that people's judgment, even just road rage, general judgment feels very different now than it did before the pandemic. Um, I don't know if it's a consequence of the fact that we're just not having as, as much in-person connectivity, which some of it's just, you know, not full of content. It's actually just easy and free. And so we kind of get right down to it. Um, before I forget, I just want to offer our listeners and share this with you, a best practice that I uh, both practice and recommend is the 10-10-10 rule before a meeting or before a conversation, which is um, on a scale of one to 10, how present are you? On a scale of one to 10, how are you energetically? And on a scale of one to 10, how are you, uh, how open-minded are you? How are you ready to learn? And I, I love the idea of before you open the door to check in with yourself, this is moment-to-moment consciousness. I think we assume everybody is present and energized and open-minded because that's how we need them to be in the workplace. Any other tips like this about managing oneself? Because this is kind of where my work comes in and, and jives with well-being, I think. So I'm, I'd yeah. love to hear what you've seen work. Sure. Um, well, we just have to remember, no matter what role you have in the workplace or in your home, most of us have some type of responsibility and we probably all like to live healthy and long. So there's a lot of good reason to want to practice self-care. So we promote something called a four, seven, eight breathing. Um, you know, as soon as you started giving me numbers, Susan, that's the first thing that popped into my head. At first, I'm going to explain what it is. And I'm going to tell you how we at Johns Hopkins Medicine are working towards making it a norm, one of the six building blocks. So four is for breathing in uh, through your nose for four seconds. Seven is for holding your breath for seven seconds and then breathing out through your mouth for eight seconds. You need to have your body in a certain posture uh, and position before you get started and you do four cycles of it. 
it takes about 90 seconds once you learn it. And it's a real, it's a great way to reset your mind to get yourself relaxed and to focus and to allow yourself to uh, decrease your muscle tension. Um, now, why did we choose that? We have a pretty big workforce, 42,000 people, and we have a wide variety of jobs. Every, you know, anything from security uh, agents to physicians, researchers, administrative folks. So we needed something that everybody could do. Uh, so everybody breathes. There's one reason. It's free. And you can do it wherever you are. So there's really no barrier to doing this except 90 seconds. And the way we've gone about doing this to make it a norm. So remember, norms are the expected behaviors. We want everyone to do this when they're feeling stressed. Is we set up a number of different culture connection points to encourage this behavior. So we have a caricature with the instructions that we put on the screensavers in our clinical workstation. So it's on the computer when it goes dormant on the screen. We have it uh, at times on the LED screens in our hospitals. We have communicated it in our weekly, Wellness Weekly. We have put it on a little plastic laminated card that fits behind our ID badge on our lanyard. So it's, you're carrying it with you wherever you go. We teach it to managers during new manager orientation. We also feature breathing exercises sometimes on Mindful Mondays. And we can come to any team and do the exercise with them if they prefer. So we've put a lot of different culture connection points in play to, to help make this a norm. It's such a cool example, Rich. I am very biased towards micro like moment to moment practices. I, I've seen somebody leave a yoga studio after a 90 minute class and then roll down their window and yell at someone on their way out of the parking lot. So, I mean, it's kind of like the more we can channel the breathing. Can you explain to our listening audience what happens to your nervous system when you take 90 seconds to breathe the way you just yeah, sure. Um, I'll try to just give a little bit of science in here. So as animals, we are wired to protect ourselves so we are not killed or harmed. So back in the day, it was trying to avoid saber-toothed tigers. And so if we saw a saber-toothed tiger, our sympathetic nervous system would uh, go up, which means our heart would start to race. Blood would flow to our muscles so we could run away. And now it's someone in the parking lot. In the case of uh, what you just said, someone, you know, who knows what happened to that, that uh, person in the parking lot. So that's not really, you know, your life is usually not threatened. I mean, it's unusual nowadays for us to have to have our sympathetic nervous system at such high alert. So when we do a four, seven, eight breathing practice, and there's other practices that, that can be done to do the same thing, it helps upregulate or increases your parasympathetic nervous system and downregulates or kind of puts the lid on your sympathetic nervous system. So your parasympathetic nervous system is the nervous system that helps, uh, that is engaged when we're relaxing and digesting our food and just kind of chilling. And that's a better way to go through the day if we want to be healthy and live a long time. 
yeah. And I have some friends who call me the jerk whisperer because I, I, I work with executives who sometimes say things in ways that might sound more like it's coming from their sympathetic nervous system. Yeah. Than, <laughs> you, know. you know, but that's interesting, right? Because what you're possibly doing is people act differently when their sympathetic nervous yes. system is on. Yeah. yeah. Yes. That's I, think, great. I think leaders at all levels have a shot at being more thoughtful. Yeah. After taking a moment to breathe, uh-huh. yes, right? Absolutely. So they're not saying things they regret. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I know that I have sometimes done that and they really should have checked in with myself before I started that conversation. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, look, I mean, it sounds like the, the consciousness raising of mm-hmm. cultures, of leaders who want to create cultures of wealth, yeah is a wonderful advancement um, in the world of organizational life. And I think the pandemic has really changed uh, how we connect and how we belong and how we communicate. And I think the future is hybrid. I know all these organizations are starting to struggle. I I realize healthcare, the ones who actually serve, um, is a little different. Any thoughts on trends you're seeing in leadership um, in our peri-post, peri-pandemic world? that we're in. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely an increased interest uh, of, of taking the employee health and well-being experience much more seriously. Um, you know, before there was some interest, but it just got ramped up in a big way because employees are leaving. You know, if they're not well and their workplace isn't supporting their well-being, they're, they're leaving and they're looking for companies that have a greater interest and, and a greater, more robust strategy to support them on their well-being journey. So I, I would say that this concept of culture is continuing on an upward tra- tra- trajectory. I, from talking to colleagues, not only are leaders more interested, but um, they're uh, starting to be more proactive and getting trained or learning new skills. Uh, some companies or more companies are getting interested in having some type of mindfulness strategy. You know, we're lucky. We have someone on our Healthy at Hopkins team. She leads our mindfulness strategy. The 478 breathing is part of it. We have a, a, a number of other things that we do. Because as you said, Susan, when we're more conscious of what we're saying and being mindful helps with that, uh, it's good for everybody. And your listening audience can learn more about what we do with mindfulness in the book, A Cure for the Common Company. Well, Eva, just a couple more questions. I I would love for you to share what's your favorite self-care practice or practices and how do they impact over time how you've been able to thrive? Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly my, my life, everyone's life is a journey and it's, it's evolved and I'm happy that my journey has evolved in a good way. So now I get up in the morning and while the coffee's making, I do a short mindfulness practice. Uh, Sometimes it's a 10 minute yoga practice and I have my coffee while I do my Wordle. Um, I find the game Wordle to be very mindful. I'm really right there in the moment. And then during the day, I always try to get outside in nature. And I don't mean I have to go into the woods, but just walking outside of one of our Hopkins buildings, depending on which campus I'm on. Uh, or if I have the option of working at home, I'll walk outside on my street. That being out with nature, I need that. I'm not the same person if I don't get that each day. 
But the micro, the unsubscribed micro practices that I do, I don't know how many times a day, is I try to, you know, I've gotten so good at this that I can sense whether or not my neck or my shoulders are tight and if I've been holding my breath. And then I can be like, okay, what's going on with you? And usually it's kind of like, okay, well, you're acting as if there's a saber-toothed tiger next to you, but it's not. So what are you going to do? So I will, yes, I will bring myself down with either a four, seven, eight, or even just five deep breaths in and out. Thank you for sharing all that. I just saw another technique of uh, blowing out candles, pretend. Oh, that's interesting. A pretend Uh, birthday. Yeah. Oh, and, oh, yeah. So you don't have to literally light candles because I'm thinking to myself. No, no, no. I know. Um, there would be a lot on my cake. Um, so listen, I wonder, first of all, where can our listeners find you online? Oh, sure. Um, well, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm active on LinkedIn. And I also have a website, richardsafir.com, if you want a big dose of me. If you wanted to, you could go to YouTube and you could search for 10-minute well-being tips for managers. We have a series of 46 episodes. One of them is emotional contagion, which which made me think of this, Susan. It's episode 44. I don't have all the episode numbers at the top of my head, but that one is really, um, I think, very, very important for every leader. Um, Yeah, it only takes 10 minutes. Uh, okay, so you just gave me a little piece of advice. Go to episode 44. Tell us yeah. what it's called. So it's called 10-Minute Well-Being Tips for Managers. 10-Minute Well-Being Tips for Managers. I love that. That sounds like a direct thing any listener can do right now. Rich, you inspire me to be even better. Thank you so much for joining us and for bringing your wisdom to our listeners. It was just well, a great, uh, well, thank great you, talk Susan. to you. I, and it was great to talk to you. And I really appreciate the work you're doing and the work that all of our colleagues are doing. You know, well being is a team sport, and no one person can do it alone. And so um, I hope all of your listeners are not only able to help themselves from this podcast. But if you're in an influential position to impact the health and well-being of other workers, that you'll pick up a copy of A Cure for the Common Company. Awesome. I love it. Thanks, Rich. Thank you.